Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Today's text from the Gospel reading, Mark the 7th chapter. And Mark writes, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So far our text, dear friends in our Lord Jesus Christ. Toward the end of the 4th and the beginning of the 3rd century B.C., there was a very famous architect by the name of Sostratus. Ptolemy I, the ruler of Egypt at the time, employed Sostratus' talents to build the famous and the magnificent the great beacon lighthouse at Alexandria, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ptolemy's purpose in building the beacon light was so that the ships might find their way into the safe haven of the harbor and the port there at Alexandria. Well, legend has it that Ptolemy instructed the architects of Stratus to, to put none other name on the edifice but Ptolemy's only. But when the great lighthouse was completed, though, the architect, Sostratus, he, he chiseled his own name in the stone on a part of the building, but he didn't want it to be easily and readily and immediately visible, so he covered it up with a bit of mud and, and a little bit of whitewash plaster. And on top of that, he wrote with obvious gold letters, the king's name, he wrote Ptolemy, but Sostratus knew well that in time the waves would hit the mud and the plaster and wash it away and then his own name would appear. With those superficial gold letters it's evident that the architect's lips as it were honored Ptolemy but in truth his heart was far from him. He sought his own honor over the kings and very quickly friends that brings us to the heart of the matter here today. For whenever the word or the instruction of God, a far higher king, mind you, than Ptolemy, whenever it is washed out and supplanted by any word of man, no matter if that word is new and novel or if it's long standing and established tradition, whenever it's washed out by the word of man, it is, to be perfectly frank, it's idolatry. Whether intentionally devised or heedlessly followed, whether placed alongside God's word, or somehow seemingly worked into and couched in God's word, whenever anyone would depart from God's given word and teach something other, those gold letters of God's glory and will are washed out for the glory and the will of man. Now you recall the Pharisees, the scribes from today's text, and consider the doctrine that they taught. If you were to take a first century man on the street survey, I'd suppose that 9 out of 10, maybe even more than that, would have told you, certainly, of course, their doctrine is a God-fearing, it's a God-pleasing doctrine. They would have said to you, don't you know how much their teaching is, quote, of the Word, of the writings of the Scriptures? Don't you know how much they use Moses and the prophets in teaching their doctrine? But consider it. 
their doctrine. Consider that those scholars in the scriptures, the Pharisees, had established no less than 613 prescripts that were above, that were beyond, that were outside of God's written and expressed will that came to be expected, these prescripts, came to be expected, required, came to be tradition like hand-washing. In fact, as we begin to hear this week, we'll hear more about it next week in the Gospel reading, the Pharisees and scribes became more concerned with the external ceremonial washing and cleansing than they, than they were this cleansing that they themselves had established and, and more concerned with this than they were with, with the, the soul cleansing which God had established by His Word and by His ordinances. Truly God-fearing? Truly God-glorifying? Or are His gold letters here being washed out? By their doctrine is he, is his will being circumvented. Circumvented, speaking of it, that's often what man-made doctrines do. Though they be couched in God's word, so often that's what they do. They circumvent God's word and his will under the pretense of godliness. Think back again to our gospel reading today because Jesus takes the spotlight And shines that incriminating spotlight on a shady little maneuver that had become commonplace to people at the time. It had to do with a little word, the Hebrew word korban. You heard Jesus speak of it in the gospel reading today. Korban. It means in Hebrew, it means offering. And Jesus there in the gospel reading, he cites their own teaching, a piece of Pharisaic tradition regarding a son's obligation to his father and his mother. Now certainly, as Jesus said, Moses, God through Moses had commanded that one honor his father and mother. But here, according to the Pharisaic tradition established, man-made tradition, any man might withhold due support from a needy father or mother simply by declaring that what would have been required to meet their need was now vowed to God as a sacred gift, hence declaring it Corban, an offering to God. And the Pharisaic tradition then held that such a vow had outweighed every other, every other consideration, disengaged a man from every other obligation that involved his money or his goods. You see how it circumvents God's will? Of course, how soon the man who claimed Corbin in the face of his needy father or mother, how soon he would actually pay over to the priest what was due, well, that was another matter. Often, it wasn't even paid. Circumventing God's word with Corban, with their lips, they honor God, but their hearts are in another place. And woe to the man, woe to the man who would honor God with his lips and yet place his heart on teachings that are man-made. Worse to the church, worse to its leaders that would do the same thing and lead others to do the same thing but so it is even among the teaching institutions of God's people that humanly established tradition continues to be spoon-fed for instance to young learning minds that that we just might yet be though divinely permitted we might yet be byproducts of cosmic evolutionary processes 
But that's not what God's word says about how it was in the beginning. So it is when God's preachers would require of God's people highest devotion to any other woman or man besides that of Christ Jesus. So it is when God's preachers would require of us special days of devotion on the calendar during the week. So it is when the church, in the name of love, so often capitulates to culture and adopts increasingly established societal traditions about marriage and family and sexuality and fetal human worth, instead of tenaciously embracing with firm resolve what God has expressly in his word declared to be right and good. So it is when God's people are led by addition to God's word, sometimes even called tradition, to look upon their own piety as their seal of salvation or or to look to their own external cleanliness, as it were, and talk to rest on the uh, secure in their living a clean life so that one might present himself clean to God. No, but rather a church rightly should focus all attention and eternal hopes on Christ Jesus, who, as our epistle reading tells us, loved us and gave himself for us that he might cleanse us. Not that we would cleanse ourselves, that he would cleanse us by the washing of water with the word so that he, Paul writes in the epistle reading, might present the church to himself. He does the presenting in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And certainly... Friends, we'd also leave God's word, as Jesus put it today. We would all also leave God's word at the smaller level, at the family level, or even the individual level. When, for instance, that marital trouble comes because we husbands, we don't love our wives as endearingly, as fervently as Christ loves his church. And because wives don't as lovingly and tenderly submit themselves as readily to their husbands as they would to the Lord, and so troubles come. And we leave his word and follow in the world's tradition when we, his own people, for convenience, because of the trouble. But for convenience would mutually put asunder what God has joined and by his word and in his word has sanctified. And certainly we've all cried Corban, as it were, when under the cover of something that appeared godly, we find our excuse to do what's expedient and to do what's preferred and to do what's desired instead of doing what's right. And I tell you by embracing, to any degree by embracing any such God-opposed teachings or traditions or or doctrines. In effect, then, wouldn't we be handing them down to to our own children as we encourage them by embracing them so that in one facet of our life or another, Christ's words from the Gospel reading today would certainly apply to you and, and to me as well when he says, you make void. Literally, in the original language, it's you, de Lord. You dislord the word of God by your tradition. That you have handed down. The traditions of men. Now mind you, I'm not talking and haven't here at all been talking about the fine ones. And there are good ones. Good practices, good customs that are based on God's word. I'm not talking about those. 
those that are squarely built and based upon God's word, but but rather the man-made doctrines, teachings that stand above, that stand beside, that stand outside the light of God's word, those doctrines of men, those traditions, they never will direct souls, those tossed about, those wayfaring, those adrift, they'll never direct souls into heaven's safe haven in the way that that great Alexandrian lighthouse was established to beckon homeward-bound ships into the safety of the, the harbor. Man's word, man's doctrines can never do that. That's why Jesus he was so irate and angry in today's text, precisely because man's doctrines always shipwreck souls in sin's darkness and leave us there. Why? Because... Because man's doctrines inevitably wash away the bright letters, the gold letters of Christ and him crucified, so that the builders of those man-made doctrines will be glorified. Man's doctrines, they're no lighthouse. They point you away from the light of Christ, leave you shipwrecked in the dark, left in our sin. But what does the psalmist say? He says, your word, Lord, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word points us not to some speculative, not to to some shady, creative, evolutionary process, but illuminates the Christ, man's only ray of hope, promised to our fallen race from the very day, a literal day, that we fell into sin's shadows. God's word points us not to some self-made and therefore uncertain salvation by the work of our hands or our best life lived. No, but it points us to certain salvation by him, Scripture says, who knew no sin, his life, that well lived for you. Him who knew no sin, but, but yet for you, for us, became sin for us, so that in him, washed in him, baptized in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So he's done it for you. That's why Jesus said, I've come not to abolish the law, the commandments. I've come to fulfill them and to fulfill them all for you on your behalf. So you see, though couched in scriptural tone, other doctrines, other gospels, as Paul calls them, other traditions, teachings of men would point you in other directions, leave you still in the dark, but Christ Jesus, him crucified for your sins, for the full forgiveness of them, raised for our assurance that he's done it and he's done it all. That's the bright light of God's word, beaming from every page of Scripture. And I'd say quite a welcomed light, isn't it, in a sea of man-made rules and regulations? I began today in the sermon talking about that great lighthouse of Alexandria. Now that light that that once beamed from that ancient Alexandrian lighthouse, you can imagine it must have been quite a welcome sight for those sea-wearied sailors. Must have been. In fact, it was said to be visible for mariners out there at sea, even 35 miles, it said, offshore. Did you put yourself in their boat? There you are, a soul out at sea, 
at night out on the great sea clouds overhead, veiling the stars, veiling the astral guides, so that you're unsure in that condition where to go, which way, which direction to sail, and one aboard declares to you confidently, teaching you, sail on this way, this is the way to go. Someone else on board tells you, no, this, this over here, that's the way that you must go. This is the way we must do things. This is the way we must sail. And then you look up and you see out there on the dark horizon, you see that unmistakable light. Unmistakable light penetrating the darkness, having the final say, putting to rest all other ways that would direct you into all other things. That light drawing you with its beckoning beams toward the safety of home and its harbor. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. For as Christ said, so must the Son of Man on the cross be lifted up, that whosoever sees the Son of Man and believes in him shall not perish but be brought to that safe haven of eternal life. Friends of God's word, Luther once said, it is the only source and sun from which all teachers must light their lamps. Tune your ears to it alone and know it by its mark because it tells you not what you must do for God, it tells you what God in Christ has already done for you and what he freely gives. Tune your ears to it and then tune out all other chatter. For as we so often sing, it's God's word that's our great heritage. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.